Hi there and welcome. This podcast chronicles my travels around the state of Ohio in the year leading up to the 2020 presidential election, interviewing my fellow Buckeye voters, hearing their stories, their hopes and their fears, their worries and concerns, and learning how those things influence how they're thinking politically as we head into another presidential election. My name is Pete Brown, and this is Ohio 2020. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of This is Ohio 2020. You know, one of the very worst things about making documentaries is when you have to go back and shoot B-roll. Because you don't want your film to be all talking heads, so you generally spend some time with your interview subjects filming them doing various things that are hopefully related to what they were talking about. If you interviewed an artist, you'd shoot B-roll of them painting. You might shoot B-roll of a gun advocate cleaning his handgun. And in an ideal world, you have so many cameras following this person around that you just capture B-roll naturally. But the reality is, more often than not, you have to go back and stage it. And it's the worst thing to shoot, because as a documentarian, you're just trying to present a version of the truth. And then here you are, contriving these visual scenes so you have something to cut away to. It's just, it's awkward to shoot, it's awkward to direct, it's awkward to do. But sometimes you still gotta do it. If you listen to the audio trailer for this project, you may have heard me referencing what my life is like in the suburbs of Columbus. And so we scheduled a day for the crew to come up to my house and shoot B-roll of me doing various suburban-like things, mowing my lawn, listening to vinyl records, puttering about the garage. And then after we shot that stuff, we set up for an interview because I wanted to capture on film two important points which need to be made at the beginning of this podcast and at the beginning of the film. And that is one, I'm going to be trying my absolute best to steer a middle path through this project. Trying not to lean towards the left or towards the right, but just be a sort of neutral middle path observer. And to this end, I currently have about eight people from across the political spectrum, the left to the right, who have agreed to sort of pre-listen to episodes of the podcast, listen for signs of bias or to give me their feedback from their perspective. Because of point number two that I wanted to make, and that is... These stories are going to be filtered through me. You're meeting these people through the lens of me. I'm the one asking their questions, directing their interviews, editing their podcast episodes, editing the film. And because everything is going to be filtered through me, I think it's important that you know a bit about me and who I am and how I think politically. Because I just think that's information that that will help set context for you as you listen to these episodes. So while I certainly didn't want to launch this project with a full episode about myself, first and foremost, like shooting that documentary B-roll, sometimes you gotta do it. So I very quickly jotted down a couple of softball type questions that I thought would allow me to get this information out about who I am politically and how I'm going to try and steer a middle path in this project. And we asked my wife if she would sit in and conduct the interview and ask the questions. And once she sat down and looked over what I'd written, she declared them all weak-ass questions and immediately went off script, asking me much tougher questions, much more complex questions, things I wasn't really prepared for, things that had me revealing things about myself that I hadn't thought I would be revealing as part of this project like why empathy is so difficult for me to achieve, or what's the relationship of privilege to me conducting this project. 
And I'm glad she did it. I'm glad she did it. It reminded me, first of all, how hard it is to be in front of a camera, particularly if it's not something you do regularly, to be in front of a camera all mic'd up with bright lights on you and a film crew around, trying to answer complicated questions about your political thought. I'm so used to being where she sat, asking the questions, that it's easy for me to forget how hard it is. And when we do these interviews, we do tell people, if you're giving an answer and you don't like how it's going, just stop and we'll start it over. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to trick anybody. I'd rather they take the time to collect their thoughts and give me the answer they want to give. At one point, my wife asked me what I meant by being a liberal and being a conservative. And I've thought about the answer I gave her, which you're going to hear here in a few minutes. I've thought about it a lot, and not because I was satisfied with it. I certainly wasn't. But even after all this time has passed, I'm still not sure how I would change it. And that was just a great reminder of how things as intimate and personal as our own political thought can be extremely complicated and difficult to express to someone else. What do you think makes you a liberal? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say it's this. I believe everybody... Everybody is not given the same advantages in life. And so you have to have lots of different responses for lots of different kinds of people. And I think that's what makes me a liberal. I think for me, as I understand conservatism, it would be everybody has the same. If I was a conservative, I'd say, I worked hard for what I got. And I got here. And if someone doesn't have it, it's because they didn't work as hard as me. And I think as a liberal, I say, they haven't had the same advantages I have. The starting line has been in a different place for us. And as a liberal, I want to say, what can we do to even that up a little bit? Oh, man, that's still a rough answer. That's hard to hear. But it's a great reminder for me heading into this project about just how tricky it can be to articulate these kinds of things. Here's how this project is supposed to work in an ideal world. I'm going to make the assumption that you agree that we have polarization in our politics today. Not on every issue, it should be said. There's many, many things that we're working well together on. But in terms of our national politics, in terms of who we want to lead this nation, I don't think it's mischaracterizing the situation to say there is intense polarization. Two sides, very far apart. So the question is, how do we bridge the gap between them? How do we find common ground? And that bridge, that common ground, that might be called civil discourse, which I'd argue is what's missing when you have two very polarized parties. And the foundation of civil discourse, in my opinion, is empathy. It is in trying to understand why someone thinks the way they do about an issue. Not to necessarily agree with that person, but just to try and see things from their point of view. Here's how I put it when my wife asked me about it. So can you talk about empathy a little bit? Yeah, and I'll, and I'll put it in context of our conversation since you're my wife, right? And a lot of times when there's a political point of view that I don't agree with, I get really upset. But you were raised by 
people with a very specific political view. And so you're able to understand why they think the way they do, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, here's a podcast. I might do a whole episode talking to, let's say, a guy who's a rural conservative. And then he listens to that podcast. He tells his friends to listen to it. Hey, I'm on this podcast. And he subscribes to the podcast. And next week's interview might be with a, a single working mother who lives in the inner city. Someone that he never crossed paths with in his life in the way that I don't cross paths with these folks. And he might listen to her story and learn something. And it, it might not change how he thinks politically, but it might help him understand why she thinks one way politically and he thinks another. And that's what I think is missing in our politics today. Without having any empathy for someone who thinks differently than you politically, then you don't have the urgency you need or you don't have any reason to try and find common ground and work things out. And it's why we're so polarized, because there's no empathy. And when I say empathy, I'm not saying I want to convince you to think like me. I'm saying I want you to understand why I think this way. And I want to understand why you think that way. And if we get that down, then we can start to work together on our problems. The whole process for me begins in learning about someone's personal journey. Learning their stories, learning how they grew up and what experiences they had, and then and only then to get into their political thought. In other words, to get at the political through the personal. Which is why, in some ways, I've started this project with an episode about me. Because it's important that you know who I am and where I am currently politically. This is information that will give you some greater sense of context for all of the content we produce going forward. I do consider myself a Democrat, though that's not always been the case. Since 1992, I've always voted for Democrats for president, but I'd argue that I drift slightly towards the right as the level of governance grows more local. I am not a fan of the current president at all, and in some ways, if I'm being really honest, I'd say this whole project might just be about me wanting to understand how my fellow Ohioans delivered the state to him in 2016 with a whopping eight-point margin. I still, I, I just don't get it. Three years later, I still don't get it. I did grow up the youngest of four. I have three older sisters. Grew up in the 70s and 80s in a very comfortable suburb of Cleveland. Never was hungry. Never wanted for much. My mom was a lifelong Democrat. She loved Dennis Kucinich, if you remember who the boy mayor was. My dad, a World War II vet, was and still is an independent. He voted for Carter and then Reagan twice and then Clinton. He's not a fan of the current president either. And truth be told, if you really want to know what life was like for me growing up, then check out the podcast Pete Brown Says, where over the past few years I've produced 27 episodes, all creative nonfiction essays written about my life. It's a storytelling podcast. All of the episodes are evergreen. If you're interested, check it out. I don't think it's going overboard to say there's more there than anyone should ever know about another person. But there are two details that are not in that podcast. The first is something my wife has been encouraging me to be more open about in life in general and on this project in particular. And that is the fact that empathy is difficult for me cognitively. It does not come naturally to me. And she pushed me on this point during our sit-down interview. So, when I asked you to describe your difficulties, you talked about your advantages. So you need to be able to describe what kind of difficulty... What's difficult for me, personally? 
empathy is difficult for me. It's diff it's difficult for me both uh, emotionally and cognitively. Okay, so you you're my wife. You're beautiful. You you can empathize immediately with people. Uh, I have Asperger's, and so I have to do a lot of thinking in order to get to a place of empathy. I'm not incapable of empathy. I'm not a sociopath. But it is definitely not the first thing that ever occurs to me. It really takes some effort to get there. So in terms do, you, do you think it's important that I say that I have Asperger's in this project? So just so you know, I've not shared this detail about my life very widely. Although I will say that when people who have known me for a while learn that I'm an Aspie, they tend to nod their heads and go, Ah, oh, yeah, that explains a lot, actually. So there's that for whatever that's worth. Hey, this is Pete. I'm stepping in the night before the podcast launches. Uh, I just wanted to tell you that I've edited and re-edited this section that comes next a few times because, because some of my pre-listeners reached out and told me that some of the jokes that were originally in this next section might not be landing right for all of our listeners. So, so I just want to point that out. Episode one, the system's already working. And to let anybody know that the only person I'm trying to make fun of in the next section is me. All right, let's get to it. The other detail that's relevant that I haven't shared is, I believe, the far more shocking reveal. I'm nervous, actually, as we record this, just because it's not something I've ever really put out there about myself. And it's one that I know I have to share just because people I went to high school with might remember this about me and would probably feel it's pretty germane. And here it is. When I was in high school, I was a young Republican. It's true. Here's the story. In 10th grade, I was somehow inexplicably elected president of my class. And in the weeks that followed that election, I started wearing a shirt and tie to school. This was a public school with not much of a dress code, so I really stuck out. And people would point at me and go, Hey, look, it's Alex B. Keaton. Alex B. Keaton was the character played by Michael J. Fox on the TV sitcom Family Ties. He was a young Republican. And frankly, I just encouraged that comparison. I thought he was a funny character. I thought he was super smart. And since he was a young Republican, that's what I started calling myself. Okay, now, we're going to need a business manager to help us avoid paying taxes. <laughs> A tax is a terrible, hairy, liberal monster <laughs> with big teeth. <laughs> and the only thing, the only thing that can stop the terrible tax monster is a Republican. I wrote an editorial for the school paper supporting Robert Bork for the Supreme Court, and I think my reasoning was... He's really smart. He's even been to law school. I had no idea of the issues surrounding his nomination. He ultimately was not confirmed, by the way. I was at Spencer Gifts at the mall, and I saw a t-shirt with Richard Nixon's head on it, and I bought it, and it said, He's tan, rested, and ready. Nixon in 88. And I wore that to school. At one point, some friends and I formed what we called the Young Republicans Club. We never had any actual meetings that I'm aware of although we did write an article about it for the school newspaper. And once, in 1988, when Michael Dukakis was giving a speech on Public Square in downtown Cleveland, 
This was when Michael Dukakis was the Democratic candidate running against George H.W. Bush, the first George Bush. Three of us skipped school. We went down there. We managed to get a hold of some George Bush signs, and then we kind of danced around the periphery of the crowd, waving them about. But I will tell you in all honesty, I had no idea what it meant to be a Republican or a Democrat at that point in my life. I wasn't 18. I couldn't vote. I remember in APS, that was my American political systems class, a girl asked what was the difference between Democrats and Republicans, and I raised my hand and offered to answer. And I don't recall my exact answer, but I do recall my teacher saying that was 100% wrong. I really didn't know. I, I just liked the image of it. Then I went off to college to Ohio University. I took political science my very first quarter, and I noticed on the door to the classroom that the college Republicans were having a meeting not long after my class, so I stuck around, and I remember I sat in the back for that meeting, and it became very clear to me as I sat there that the kinds of issues that they were talking about and the takes that they had on those issues meant being a Republican. I certainly was not one. Now, that's not the moment I became a Democrat, but it is the moment that I knew I wasn't a Republican. The 1992 election was the first time I got a vote for president. I had volunteered, to the extent that you can volunteer for a campaign in 1992, for Jerry Brown, who was then the governor of California. And I volunteered for his campaign because he had this rule that he wouldn't accept any donation over $100. And I thought that was a really good idea. I thought it would be a good way to keep big money out of our elections. I was a, a naive idealist. I didn't realize that what it really was was a suicide pact for the election. I remember a lot about that 92 election. I remember Hillary Clinton came and gave a huge speech to our campus on the college green. I remember I was standing in the back and not far from me, the college Republicans were dancing about the periphery with their George Bush signs, just as I had done four years earlier. I remember one of them holding up a handmade sign that said, Inhale to the Chief. And that was about this issue in the 92 election where Bill Clinton said he had smoked marijuana when he was in college, but he didn't actually inhale. As I think about it, I realize our politics are about the same dumb things. I remember another guy winding his way through the crowd, holding up a homemade sign that said, Anarchy through love. And as he walked by you, he'd go, We don't need rules. We don't need laws. We just need to love each other. And I remember waiting in line three or four hours to vote in that election with all these other students. And none of us minded it. It was just, it was a fun afternoon. After college, I got a master's in creative writing where I met my wife, and then the two of us joined the Peace Corps. We served two years in southern Russia. I taught American literature and English language at Rostov State University, which was then the fifth largest university in Russia, and my wife taught at the Teachers College. My wife hates it when I bring this up, but uh, Rostov State did in fact give me an honorary doctorate at the conclusion of my service to thank me for the things I had done. Good times. When we got out of the Peace Corps, we moved to Central Texas while my wife began work on another master's degree. And I got a job as a political reporter for a small Class A daily paper in Central Texas. And I will tell you, for the three years that I did that job, I learned more about how government works than in all my years in college and really in all the years since. I covered city council. I covered county commissioner's court. I covered school board. I covered the state legislature. Twice I had the opportunity to interview George W. Bush, who was the governor at that time. And I learned in that job the value of steering the middle path, really going out of your way to balance every story. And a lot of times that meant keeping both sides equally disappointed. As long as they were both giving me the same amount of grief, I felt like I was doing my job. And we stayed in Texas until the end of the 90s. And then we moved back to Ohio 
where we started our family. I began a career outside of journalism to better support that family, and we've been here ever since, coming up on 20 years. We're going to learn a lot more about the state of Ohio and its role in presidential elections in our next episode when I talk with Dr. Susan Morelli, a political science professor at Capital University, about why Ohio plays such a critical role in choosing the president every four years. Do check it out. I had mentioned earlier there is a group of beta listeners who listen to each episode to help me identify bias or just to give me feedback on it. If you're interested in being part of that group, I am hoping to grow it. You can send me a note to pete.brown at thisisohio2020.com. And if you could just put pre-listener in the subject line so I know what that's about. Before we wrap up, too, I do want to talk about fact-checking. In general, in this project, we're not going to be checking facts of people we interview. If they tell me they had a certain job or did a certain thing, we're taking them at their word for it. However, if somebody starts throwing a lot of statistics at us in order to make a point, we are going to fact-check those statistics and we'll step in and let you know what we found when we do. I hope there's not a lot of that. I don't think that's particularly compelling listening. And having done five of these interviews so far, we haven't had it come up yet, but I just want you to know we do have people lined up to check facts, and we'll let you know what we find and what sources we found them from. Also, if you have any feedback or you have a take you want to share about something you heard on the show or you want to send along some thoughts, you can do that by going to thisisohio2020.com, clicking on Feedback in the main navigation. That brings you to a page where you can click a button and record a voicemail right there on the computer, and it'll get sent right to us. So at any time in any show, remember, you can send feedback to us that way. Good times, everybody. This is Ohio 2020 is a podcast and documentary film project Produced by Blue Monkey Communications, written and directed by me, Pete Brown, with production and post-production ably handled by Kevin Davison of Twittering Machine Productions. Want to be on the show and share your stories and political insights? Then head to thisisohio2020.com and click apply. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend or two about us, post about us on social media, or head to thisisohio2020.com and click Feedback, where you can record a voicemail that comes right to us. Music and sound effects in today's show may come from the websites freesound.org, incompetech.com, or podcastmusic.com, and in general is licensed under Creative Commons 3.0. Until next time... I'm Pete Brown for This is Ohio 2020, wishing you and yours good times. Mm -hmm.